I love how you approach that, Tom. I mean, all the trials, we could call them challenges, we can call them problems, we call them different things, but they're really blessings in, in the making, if you think about it. My mom's here today, and I'll stop referencing you in a, in a minute, but you've gone through your own trial of cancer. And she's here with us today, and she's never been uh, more energetic or bubblier or whatever, but she's got a lot of energy. And I have all the, a lot of kids, and so I appreciate it when she helps out. But those are blessings because it does give us an opportunity to grow in our, in our faith, to understand what endurance is, what perseverance is. We couldn't have those things unless we had bad days somewhere in the, along the line. So if you approach, as a Christian, your challenges or your problems, and we call them struggles, if you approach them as opportunities to grow in your faith, you'll have a different outlook as you go through, I believe. And I love how you, what you said this morning, Tom, because it, it fits right in with our message for today. We'll be going through John chapter 1. Last week we, we completed John's prologue, which is the first 18 verses of John, which was very dense with theology. I'll give you that. So we're moving on now to the more historical aspect of John's gospel. And we have to understand what John wrote his gospel for. Remember he told us uh, why, why he wrote his gospel. He said he wrote it so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote his gospel. There's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them are a little bit different, but if for no other reason, because the Old Testament has laid out that if anything be established, it be established by two or three witnesses at least. So God gave us four in the Gospels for Jesus, the life and times of Jesus. And so it's important to know why John is, is concerned with what he writes about because he's concerned with evidence. He's trying to make the case that Jesus is the Son of God so that we believe in him. And he, he wants to give us the facts, like the old Joe Friday, remember watching uh, Dragnet, was it? I, I watched the reruns, I didn't watch the originals. But Joe Friday, his line was, just the facts, ma'am. Remember that? Just the facts. I don't need all the, the details. John writes about the facts. He doesn't include a lot of the colorful details like the other synoptic gospels do. Synoptic just means synopsis, and that's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics because they basically follow the same line and trajectory. John's totally different. John focuses on the facts. And so they're all pointing back to why and how John is making his case. He's making a case. And so with those things in mind, I'll read through John 1. We'll be going through uh, verse 19 through 34 today. In verse 19 we read, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is of he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed in Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness, that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, once again, we come with thankful hearts to hear from you, from your word, always guided by the Spirit. Father, help us to understand what's being said today and help it take root in our hearts so that we can be also a witness as we leave here today for you that your Son is truly God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, in verse 19, John the Apostle, he's writing the Gospel, writes his account of John the Baptist's testimony. We don't want to be confused about which John we're talking about. So it's John the Apostle writing about John the Baptist. It's John the Baptist's testimony. Verse 19 says and begins, And this is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? This is the testimony of John. We just sang a song about how I will testify to love and how that's about being a witness for something. It's a testimony of John. Immediately we see John the Apostle making his case for the person of Jesus Christ being the Messiah. You know who offers testimony is witnesses offer testimony. In a court case, you call witnesses. You call people that saw it happen. We want the eyewitnesses. We don't care about the third person down the line that, that he told what happened. Hearsay, right? Well, she told me this happened. How do they know that? Because he told her, and then that's, it's just, it gets too conflated and confusing. I want to talk to the person who saw the thing happen, right? So John is saying, John the Baptist was there. Well, John the Apostle was there too. But he's giving us good first-hand evidence, witness, a testimony. This also reminds me of the verse in Revelation 12 where we're told that Satan is defeated by two things. Remember what they were? Satan is defeated by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. That ranks pretty high. We all have our personal experiences. We just heard from Tom. And that wasn't really just one. That was a, a lot of them. What happened to me? How God got me through it? That's your testimony. Satan is defeated by the blood of the Lamb. We know that. And the word of our testimony. <clears throat> I'm looking at the clock. I have a, a three-minute video I'd like to show you about a, a, a testimony of a person. So we'll play that now. Let's hit the lights if we could. Three minutes. My whole story started when I was about uh, 18 years old. Uh, I started getting these bloody noses like crazy, like every day. And um, I got a call from my doctor and he said, you need to go straight to the hospital right now. The first thing that they thought was, was cancer at the time. So uh, the doctor said, you know, you'll probably have about a year to live. That was the time when I really started thinking about, you know, what I was doing with my life. I got involved a little bit in ministry at that time and uh, got caught back up in work and all of a sudden I, my ministry took a back seat in my life and, and God kind of took a back seat. I found out I had this uh, disease called ALPS. It's an autoimmune disease where uh, the good cells attack the good cells and even they're bad. This last year I was at a family event. I got really sick, and with my disease, you have to go straight to the hospital as soon as you get any kind of sickness. So as time progressed, I was getting sicker and sicker. I was so weak and so tired uh, that I just uh, I ended up falling asleep right then. Um, I didn't wake up until two weeks later. So um, I was in a coma. It was just a long amount of dreaming, but the difference was all of the dreams were survival dreams. My fiance and others who were there, uh, while I was sick, they were talking to me, and I could hear them, I think, and I think it was affecting me fighting in my dreams, and I had no idea, you know. For all I knew, I just, I was taking a nap, you know, <laughs> having a couple dreams, and, and I woke up two weeks later having no idea that that much time had passed. Um, when I first woke up, I actually had uh, blackness, like, completely covering my, like, what used to be my fingers here, and it was uh, just, just totally black, you know, which was, uh, really scary at first when I first saw it, um, but the machines were pumping the oxygen to the vital organs that were necessary, so they were getting all the oxygen and my fingers and toes weren't, so they were going to have to amputate. Um, at first, you would think that I, I would be upset and mad, but I, all I could think was just, I'm, I'm so lucky that I'm awake, you know. I could have just as easily passed away in that coma. I had about a 10% chance of living, and from that point forward, every surgery I had, I felt like Jesus was right there with me. Um, and he started to use me within the hospital with, with the nurses and with the other people in the hospital. All of them were like blown away by the fact that I was so happy. And they were like, but are you sure you're okay? You know, and I'm like, yeah, I'm totally fine. I know that I have a savior, Jesus Christ, who's here with me and that God's doing this for a reason and he's gonna use this for something great. And that was a way that I was able to influence others through my story. 
when I first came back to church, I remember the music starting and I was just crying, like bawling from happiness, from joy, from the fact that I was surrounded by a group of other believers. It really made me count my blessings. That's what I hope everyone who's listening to this begins to do because I don't want you to be on your deathbed to have to realize, man, I need to fix my life. I want you to just realize it right now and know that like every day we should be glorifying God, we should be finding new ways to better the world around us, and you know, everything is a blessing. I hope people start to count their blessings. Wow. I think we just had church again. <laughs> I think that's important, and that's just... An example, I wanted to give one example, there's millions of testimonies out there, of just this person's testimony. That was encouraging, wasn't it? Why is it encouraging? Because we heard, some, we heard someone go through a trial, and they came out, and, and they're doing okay, and they're telling us we should be doing okay, we should be having hope through these trials. That's all a testimony is, it's an example for you. It's not hard to do, it's just your story. With Jesus. Because someone hears that, and they're going to be uplifted and say, boy, that was a great story. And they might even say, who is this Jesus you're talking about? Because the world doesn't have Jesus, the ones that don't believe. How do they get through things like that? If, you're, if you pass out at a party, and you wake up two weeks later, and your fingers are black, and they have to amputate, how does the world deal with that without Christ? Different than that, right? So we're thankful that we go through these trials. It's easier to say that once you're through them, trust me. Right? And, and someone like, well, Tom would know that. But don't let them get you too far down while you're in them either, right? And so if you have your notes today, your first write-in says, Your testimony is a tool given by God to accompany the proclaiming of the gospel. Your testimony is powerful too. We know Jesus washes away sin. We know the blood of the Lamb washes away sin, but your testimony is powerful too. It's a tool given to you by God. Why would he allow you to go through different things if he didn't want you to tell other people about how he got you through them? Use those things. Your testimony is a first-hand account. Every believer has one. And it can be a very powerful tool. Testimonies carry a powerful message of hope. No one wants to hear a bad testimony of, uh, oh, what is it, uh, hopelessness. That's not really a testimony. That's just complaining, I think. What is it? <laughs> But we want to hear those encouraging words because then it can say, well, I, I'm going through something now, and if he can get through that, I know I can get through this. Because hopefully none of us will go through something like that. That's pretty bad. Hopefully it'll give us some perspective to say, well, you know, I thought my week was pretty bad, but I should actually be thankful now because it's not as bad as some around me, right? And I like when we talk about trials and tribulations, we normally say, that we go through them. We go through trials, we go through tribulations, and I really like, and I want to focus on the word, through. We go through them. That means you get through them. Hopefully, we're not just staying in our trials and tribulations. There was somebody once said, metaphorically speaking, he said, if you find yourself walking through hell, by all means, keep walking. Don't stay there. Don't stop and wallow in it. Get through it one step at a time with Jesus leading us. Well, it says in verse 19 also that the Jews and priests sent the Levites uh, to Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Who is this John the Baptist person? And in John's gospel, he uses that term, the Jews, about 70 times. And he's not talking about the people. He's talking about the Jewish leadership. He's talking about the people that were really Jesus' enemies. Pharisees, Sadducees, those who didn't like what Jesus was doing is who John refers to as the Jews. When he says the Jews sent the priests and Levites. They'd gotten word of this person out in the wilderness, John the Baptist, doing something. The crowds were going out to see him, and they wanted to know what was happening out there. And it was across the Jordan. It was pretty far away. So they sent the delegation out to see who is this person, what's he doing, what's he all about. And it's interesting that John the Baptist was kind of literally and physically speaking coming from the wilderness. He was way out there. We know about John the Baptist more colorfully from the other Gospels that say, well, he dressed in camel's hair clothes and he ate uh, wild honey and, and he ate uh, locusts. And, you know, he was kind of a weird guy living out there off the grid. 
he was way out there in the wilderness. Literally, it was wilderness. So he was physically speaking, coming out of there. There's nothing past that, but he was coming out of there, and he was coming out with a message and a, a glimmer of hope, and people heard about it, and they started to go out to him to hear what this message is, this message is hope, of hope. But if you think about it, spiritually speaking, which we always like to do when we're going through Scripture, we hear the physical, we want to say, is there a physical aspect to this, a physical or a spiritual message here? Sometimes there isn't, but sometimes there is. And I think here's one of those times where there is. John was coming out of that wilderness, the desert, wasteland, barren. But he was also coming at a time of spiritual wilderness. Because for 400 years, the Israelites hadn't heard from God through a prophet. The last prophet was Malachi, and it was 400 years before. And so they had gone their own way. They had this temple system with the... Pharisees were leading the temple system, and it was all about self-righteousness. I can achieve the law. I can do it. I can kind of pick myself up by the bootstraps and achieve righteousness. And that just leads you to spiritual darkness. So during this four centuries of this spiritual darkness, there's a voice in the wilderness saying something different. And it's John the Baptist. And the Jews sent people out to see what was going on. It made me think of not just the physical darkness or, or physical wilderness, but I wonder if we've ever felt, and I'm sure we have, those times in our lives of spiritual wilderness. Maybe before you came to Jesus, can you relate to how you were just kind of blowing in the wind, going through life without a compass, not sure where to find the truth, though you wanted to find the truth. You thought you'd find it here, figured out, no, that wasn't the truth. Thought you'd find it over there. No, that didn't work. Maybe it was in a relationship or a job. But after all that, it was just still spiritual wilderness. What am I doing? Why am I here? What's the purpose of life? Those kind of questions. Until you find Jesus, you realize you come out of that wilderness. Your next note says, without Jesus, the spiritual wilderness is where everyone lives. I'm sure some of us can relate. It's not fun to be in the wilderness if you don't know what you're doing. Especially spiritual wilderness. You know how it is in the physical wilderness. If you don't know how to survive out there, it's pretty scary. And it can take your life. Think how much more dangerous the spiritual wilderness when it can cost you your eternity. And so the Jewish leaders and priests and Levites went to inquire. And John the Baptist was a Levite. His dad was a priest. They sent some of the people that they thought maybe knew him. Or maybe he knew them. He was a prophet, first prophet in 400 years since Malachi. And later in John's Gospel, in chapter 5, Jesus calls John the Baptist a burning and shining lamp. Jesus endorses John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest man that ever lived to that point. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among these born of women, there has arisen no greater one than John the Baptist. Wow. Quite an endorsement by the Lord. But the Jews didn't know him. They didn't know him from Adam, as they say. They asked him, who are you? We don't know who you are. Verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Why is he stringing them along? Are you him? No. Are you him? No. How about him? No, not him. Why don't you just tell us who you are? What are you doing here? But they were asking all these questions about, are you this person? Are you that person? They were looking for the Messiah. They were hoping for the Messiah for 400 years, like we said. Prophet Malachi warned them. Not just warned, but said, he's coming. So for four centuries, they waited. Now there's a person out there in the wilderness. He's gathering people, and they thought, well, maybe he's the, he's the one Malachi was talking about. But God was silent for those centuries. And it reminds me about how not just before Christ a person can be in the spiritual wilderness, but even if you're in Christ and you're Christians, God can seem kind of quiet at times, can he? I mean, 400 years is one thing, but even if it's for four weeks or four years, you say, God, where have you been? Why don't I hear from you like I used to? And it's never that God left you. 
I mean, maybe we stepped away from God a little bit more than we are supposed to. Maybe we're more prioritizing our worldly endeavors. That happens all the time. But God doesn't leave us. You might start asking your questions, yourself questions like, well, maybe you forgot about me, God. I'm still here. Don't you care about this situation in my life? Don't you care about this family member going through this thing? Where are you? How come I'm not feeling your wisdom, your guidance, something? Have you abandoned me? Are you punishing me for something I did? What is it? Just show me. Your next writing says, The Lord will not abandon his people, though. He won't abandon you. As the Israelites were crossing the promised land after 40 years of being in literal wilderness, let alone spiritual, through many valleys, think of all the valleys they went through. Many dark times. Moses tells those people in Deuteronomy 31, he says, It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now their trials, dare I say, were more grievous than our trials. They left Egypt with, we don't know how many, maybe a million, maybe a couple million people. You know who got into the promised land after all those people left Egypt? You know how many got over? Two. Moses and Caleb, or Joshua and Caleb. All the other people died. And God rose up a brand new generation to enter the promised land. They had many trials. Many that took their lives. They had snakes biting them, getting the diseases, and on and on. If God doesn't forsake them, don't think he forsake you. He's always with his people. And if we want more evidence for us today, we say, well, that was for the Israelites. He wasn't talking to us, to me today. Look at Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. Jesus tells us before he ascends, behold, I'm with you always. I'm with you always. I'll be with you forever. During these quiet times in life, perhaps the Lord's preparing us for a greater testimony. You ever think of it that way? You might think, I need to minister to this person in 15 years in Colorado. And he does the work and he says, but how I'm going to do it is through this issue in Minnesota, through this believer, and it's going to be a trial. And I'm going to train him up in just the perfect way to then later minister to that person somehow down the line. We don't see God's plan, but he has one. And we trust him. Would you ever say, now God, I want you to do it my way. Would you ever try to even dare do that? I mean, why would you even think about it? Just say, you know what, I trust you, Lord, you know what you're doing. God's got a plan. And I think through te- testimony or through trials and tribulations, he's preparing us for a greater testimony. How can we help someone and ever say to them, you know what, I can help you because I've been through that. Here's how I did it. Or here's what it was like to walk closer with the Lord if you've never been there. Some people say, well, I really don't have much of a testimony at all. Well, you better be careful when you say that because the Lord might give you something to get through and then you have a testimony. Be thankful for your testimony. Even if it's a regular old Christian testimony, grew up in the church, on and on. Because I'm sure if you want a testimony, he'll give you one. But like they say, what's the, you can't have a testimony without a, a test. Right. And that testimony will become to his glory in your life. And so the Jews have been anticipating this Messiah for hundreds of years, through the words of Malachi, they were waiting to come, for someone to come before the great day of the Lord. In Malachi 4, we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah, Malachi writes, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he'll turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So now we see why the, the Jews were asking, Well, are you Elijah? We just heard the last thing from a prophet we heard was that Elijah's coming before the great day of the Lord. Are you Elijah? John says, no, I'm not Elijah. Okay, check that box. He's not Elijah. It's noteworthy that the angel who came to John the Baptist's father and mother, Zechariah and Elizabeth, said this. If you read back in Luke 1, there's more details in that passage. Luke 1, 17, he says he'd go before, the angel said that their son, John the Baptist, would go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah. So you got Malachi saying, Elijah will come before the day of the Lord. And the angel that comes to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, saying, your son will be like Elijah in spirit and power. 
You can see how the Jews would say, well, are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not Elijah. And this is true. He wasn't physically Elijah. Another interesting point. What did Jesus say about John the Baptist? Matthew 11. He says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, Jesus says, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Where have we heard that before? Through the parables. It's true, Jesus was not physically Elijah. But according to Jesus, he was Elijah in a spiritual way. Again, Jesus uses this qualification of, he who has ears, let him hear. We've heard that through the parables. I'm telling you this, I'm saying these words, but I want you to hear them spiritually. If I say, well, he's Elijah, we understand metaphorically speaking, or whatever it might be, he comes with the effect of the power and the spirit of Elijah's ministry. He's not the reincarnation of Elijah. You know, so we understand what he's saying here. So they ask him then, well, are you the prophet? This general word, the prophet. Why this question? The Jews were thinking about the words of the last prophet in the Old Testament just now, Malachi. Last prophet in the Old Testament. They were also thinking of the first prophet in the Old Testament, Moses. We've seen these bookends a lot in Jesus' teaching. He he references beginning and end and encompasses things sometimes. So the Jews ask about the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, what he said, are you Elijah? No. What about on this end of the Old Testament, Moses? Deuteronomy 18 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. The first prophet of the Old Testament, Moses. They said, are you that prophet? John said, no, not that prophet. So again, the Jews asked, who are you then? Just tell us. John said, I'm a voice. I'm just a voice. Humble. Didn't even call himself by his own name. Kind of like he said, I'm, uh, he could have said, I'm nobody, I'm just a voice. John the Baptist, in your notes, shows us the heart of a faithful witness. It's not about them. Someone wants to tell you about Jesus and it becomes more about them. Mm. Where's Jesus? Faithful witness seeks no accolades, no fanfare. No flattery, but always directs everyone to someone greater than he. And that should be Jesus. John the Baptist was a preacher. The faithful preacher's message should always point to Jesus. Not to himself or to other human wisdom or politics or cultural fads. Just Jesus and only Jesus. John the Baptist sees that the Jews were trying to make sense of him from the scriptures. So he gives them their answer. Because he is from the scriptures, just not how they may have thought. Verse 23 says, He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He said, you want to know who I am? I'm the voice in the wilderness that Isaiah uh, proclaimed would come. That's me. So I am in scripture, but not where you thought I was. Indeed, John the Baptist was a fulfillment of prophecy, and he was the one proclaiming the Messiah would come. He'd come soon. Verse 24. Now they'd been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing for neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing, way out there. The Jewish leaders seemed to have a problem with with John baptizing. But he lets them know his baptism is a little different. It's water baptism. Acts 19, Luke tells us, John baptized with the baptism of repentance while telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Your next note says the baptism that really matters is spiritual baptism. <clears throat> John says the Messiah is to come, that is to come is greater than he, and he was called the greatest man who ever lived. And it's his baptism, the one that's coming later. His baptism is the one that matters. He says, I can just dunk in water. 
but the one that's coming is a spiritual baptism. He was saying, you think this is a big deal, you wait what's coming next, you'll you'll see a big deal, it's coming. There's one coming greater than him. And his baptism will bring something greater than this. Verse 29 says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed in Israel. And it sure did draw crowds. They said, why are you baptizing? He said, so that the Messiah would be understood and seen and and proclaimed to you in Israel. And there were many people by the thousands coming out into the wilderness for the light of John the Baptist. And that was just the beginning. Here in in John the Baptist's highest point of his testimony about Jesus, he introduces him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we as Christians have lived our entire lives and we've always heard the Lamb of God, this phrase. But back then they didn't hear that before. The first century Jews, the Lamb of God, what were they thinking when they heard this? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it's a new thing for them. Why does Jesus, why does John the Baptist call Jesus the Lamb of God? What were the Jews thinking when John said this? They were probably thinking the sacrificial system, the Passover lamb. Their minds went probably right there immediately. Paul calls Jesus our Passover lamb. And again, we hear these terms, but for them it was new. What do you mean he's our Passover lamb? What is this lamb of God talk? How How does that work? So we have to look at it from their perspective, that first century Jew. For 1,600 years, they had the Jewish temple system, the sacrificial system. They reminded themselves of their sin every single day because they had to sacrifice every day. They brought pigeons, they brought doves, bulls, goats, lambs. The temple was a bloody place. The Lord decreed, in the law, in Leviticus 17, that blood was required for the forgiveness of sins, for remission of sins. He wanted it to cost something. He wanted to show us how ugly sin was. So he made it disgusting. And I'm sure it stunk in the temple. And it was filthy. And there's blood everywhere. And he was showing us, this is how I view sin. I don't take it lightly, he was saying. He doesn't want us to take our sin lightly. Because if sin was kind of a clean thing, and it smelled nice, it wouldn't bother anybody. He made the temple a disgusting place so we would see how disgusting sin is. You think they liked going there? You ever walk past a barn? You can smell a barn from a mile away on a good day. Imagine how the temple smelled. Rotting flesh, rotting blood. They couldn't surely wash it all away. They had little... Things that, like rain gutters that would take the, the blood from the top of the Temple Mount down into the valley, and it would stink out there. He wants us to understand how ugly sin is. And it wasn't just a once-a-year thing on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It was every day they would offer their sacrifices. Every day they'd be reminded of their sin. And every day, yesterday's sacrifice wasn't enough. i got to go back tomorrow. Is there ever going to come a sacrifice that's going to be enough? It's in Jesus. That's why, Paul's, why John says, he's the Lamb of God, that guy coming over there that's going to take away the sin of the world. And it'll be done forever. You want to go back to that place. The New Testament, the New Testament reinforces this in Hebrews 9 where the author tells us, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. God had decreed that blood would be shed for the sins to be forgiven. And he kept his own laws. But would there ever be a sacrifice that could take away all the sin of the world? It could only be a divine sacrifice of a person that lived a real human life. And that's who Jesus was. And your next note says, Jesus would be the ultimate and sufficient sacrifice for sins. The ultimate means the last 
And a sufficient means it's enough. Isn't that beautiful? I'm going to take a drink. Isn't it nice to know? From our perspective, we don't understand. We haven't gone to the temple every day and, and smelled those smells and seen those scenes of blood and had our kids see it and ask what's going on and we have to explain. And We haven't gone through that. So I think for them, in the first century, to know there's a, there's a sacrifice coming, a final sacrifice, and it's sufficient. I don't have to go back there. And I'm atoned for. Yeah, what a great gift. What a great message. And that's who Jesus is. In Hebrews 10, it gives us some more color. Verse 4, we read, the author says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's us, if we believe. Amen. Once and for all, sufficient for all sin. This is why John the Baptist introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John answers the question of, of the priests and Levites who said, why are you baptizing? He said that the Messiah might be revealed to Israel. The Messiah is coming. I'm drawing a crowd. He'll be here soon. John was doing this as a precursor to what was coming, and it was coming very soon. In fact, Jesus comes out of the scene the next day. It's not just a physical baptism for repentance that's important here. It's a spiritual baptism which Jesus brings. And salvation. John's baptism in water wasn't a, a, a baptism of salvation. It was, it was a baptism of repentance. Repentance means to change your ways, to turn your direction, change your direction. But you're going to fall back into that if you're not careful within a week. You've got to go back, get baptized again in water. Is what, it doesn't save you. But the spiritual baptism into the Spirit will save you. He said, that's coming. And it came the next day. John's testimony continues. Verse 32. And John bore witness. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He offers a first-hand account. John the Baptist was there at Jesus' baptism because he baptized him. And he heard the voice of the Lord God, the Father, speak. He was looking at the God the Son, and he said he saw the Spirit descend and rest upon Christ like a dove. And it doesn't say he was a dove. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. Understand, we're just, we just see the dove because it's a symbol. It says he came and descended like a dove. Just imagine how that, a dove would kind of flutter down, softly land. That's where we get the dove pictures. And so he's telling us that he saw the Holy Spirit descend and remain on Jesus Christ. And the Father told him, the one that the Spirit remains upon is the one. And that's how he knew. And he, is the, he was the one. He was confirmed. His prophecy from the Father was confirmed when he saw that. And Paul also refers to this one salvation that's, I don't know what's the word, efficacious, effective, the one that really matters, the one that really means something. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope, that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one baptism that matters. Paul again, 1 Corinthians 12 says, For in one spirit we're all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all we were made to drink of one spirit. There's unity in Christ. And there's one baptism that matters. Because you know, you can go and, and dunk, get dunked in a lake, and call it baptism, but if Christ isn't in your heart, it doesn't matter. You just got wet. You got to have the Spirit within you, dwelling within you, to matter. And the thief on the cross, we bring him up quite a bit. He believed he was on the cross. He didn't get baptized. He made it to heaven. Jesus said, 
when he said, remember me when you're in paradise, Jesus said, today I tell you, you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't get baptized. So we understand the more important quote-unquote baptism is the one that's spiritual. Is he within you or not? Because I'm sure there's many people that have been baptized in water but aren't in heaven. Now, of course, baptism in the water is very important because it shows you're willing to say, I'm with Christ publicly. It's an act of obedience, and we should want to obey our Lord. That's one way to do it. The first thing he says, I want you to get baptized in my name so you identify with me in front of everybody and not be ashamed. It's very important. So if any of us, even if we're older, you know, uh, 30s is older to my kids. We asked the kids, how old do you think old is? And we asked all the kids. Some gave us some interesting answers. But uh, I guess I'm old, okay? Let's just put it that way. But even if you're 30, 40, 50, 60, 90, and you're not baptized, well, I encourage you, get baptized. Get baptized. And so that word baptized, by the way, literally means immersed, to be immersed, to be dunked all the way in. And it's just a transliteration of a Greek word that sounds like baptized. It's, it's baptizo. And we just say, well, we don't know what to say. We'll just call it the same thing, baptized. It just means to go under. So are you a different person, would you say, now that you've been immersed into Christ? I would hope so. We don't love our sin anymore. We hate it. We want to serve Christ. Or is there no difference between you and now and who you used to be? Even if you've been immersed in water, think about it. Are you any different? Do you desire any different things? Do you desire to be holy and righteous? And do you desire to be like Jesus and obey his commands, love one another? In Ephesians 1, Paul tells us, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When we believe... The Holy Spirit seals us. He's, he indwells us. We're immersed in the Spirit. When we can't hear God, it seems like we're in the wilderness and the darkness. When we start asking those questions, remember this verse among others, many verses out there, about how in the first part of that verse, and you know it says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Just like Tom said earlier, we make our plans, but he directs our path. He directs our steps. And I always say, whenever I mention that verse, I say, it could read this. We make our plans, and then God laughs, and then he directs our steps. Because he looks and he says, are you kidding me right now? Really? You're going to do that? Okay, go ahead and try. But Ephesians and other places attest to the fact that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. So if you think, well, God, you, you missed me on this one, and, and I'm really going through this thing over here. Maybe this doesn't fit into your plan. Maybe there's just this is kind of outside the box, and it's not going to fit into your plan. No. It says all things. He works all things according to his will. If you see a, a challenge or a struggle as a, quote, bad thing, you might look back in, in a decade or two, like, again, Tom just said, he looks at those things as blessings. How could you say they're a blessing? In the moment, you can't. But we didn't know the end of the story until we're there. And we know the end of the story as we say, we win. Jesus wins. We're victorious. But in our individual struggles, we don't know how it's going to end exactly. But we know and we should know God is directing all of this according to his will. For some reason, there's a purpose in there. And he says that when we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, he's the guarantee of our salvation until we acquire the possession of it, meaning we will acquire the possession of our inheritance. What's our inheritance? Salvation. Renewal. Complete. Well, we're not going to have bodies like this, fallen bodies, but we're going to have complete health. My kids are studying junior Bible quiz questions, and one of the questions says, uh, in heaven, what are five things that will not be in heaven? And they go through, and little Zachary, he's seven years old, he knows there won't be any tears, Sorrow, pain. I forgot the other two, but you know what I'm saying. There's no sorrow, no pain in heaven. We know that's our inheritance. 
We'll get that. He says, you're sealed until you get there. Thank you, Jesus. Because sometimes it feels like we're not going to make it. Well, this body's not going to make it because we're not going to live forever in this body. We live in a fallen world. We'll be healed along the way, but at some point we'll be gone. In a hundred years, we're all going to be gone. This body will be gone. But our spirits will live forever. That's the inheritance. That's the ultimate attaining, attainment that we want. We, have to kind of, we, we live in a microcosm sometimes thinking, God, you're not going to get me through this one. Or, or my loved one just passed away. You failed me. No. When we get to glory, we can ask him why. And he'll explain to us and we'll completely understand and say, I see. I see why. I see why that was the best thing. Because this thing happened. This blessing happened. These people were saved because of that bad thing. I didn't see it, Lord. I should have trusted you. Even when life's hard, when it gets even worse and it seems hopeless, can't see a way out, Lord guarantees by his spirit you'll get there. You'll receive your inheritance. Last verse, verse 34. And I've seen, John says, and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist has given his testimony here. John the Apostle has been focusing on the evidence in this passage that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And he's doing this so that we might believe in him so that we might have eternal life as well. And so I'll follow John the Baptist and, and offer my testimony as well, just to testify that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I hope like John the Apostle and like John the Baptist, that by hearing this, that you also might believe in Christ. I believe we all do here. And if you ever already believe in him, don't forsake your testimony. We are here 2,000 years after John wrote these words. It's his testimony about a testimony. And John the Baptist is having his testimony read today in this place. And we're hearing it. And it's blessing us thousands of years later. Don't forsake your testimony. We never know how far it's going to go. But you've heard good testimonies throughout your lives about Christians, about the person who brought Billy Graham to Jesus as an example, or people that met someone on a train 20 years earlier, and then it clicked later with them, and they realized, i got to get to church, and they went, and then they became ministers, and on and on. We don't know how God will use our testimony, but use it. Sometimes you talk to people, and then you meet them years down the road, and they say, hey, remember when you said that thing over there? That was, that was a great joke you told me. And, and you think, I don't remember even you. You remember the joke I told you? People remember what you say. Sometimes you don't even remember what you say. So be careful what you say, first of all. But be measured with what you're saying, too. Use it strategically to edify people with what Jesus did for you. It's easy because it's happened to you. They can't say, no, that didn't happen. Because it did. Because you lived it. Use it. It's a very powerful tool for evangelism. The Bible says that gospel, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And believing the gospel is what brings salvation, but your testimony may bring someone just a little bit closer to Jesus to be ready to hear that gospel. Because, you know, sometimes you talk about Jesus to some people, they turn you off right away. But if they hear your story and they look at you and say, how did you get through that? They say, well, I believe in Jesus. And, and I... And you go on and you tell them, you know, he's my hope and he gives me peace that passes understanding and just let it be at that. Now that's your story. It's not Bible scripture, quote unquote, but it's still powerful. It gets to their heart and they may come in that door to Jesus. So think about your testimony when you leave here. You might think, well, I don't have a testimony. Well, this week, just take a few minutes and think about what is my testimony? If someone asked me what I believe or something, if some opportunity came up, be ready to tell them. Something about you. Any trial? Any, any troubles that the, word might, the world might look at and say, wow, that would be devastating for me and my family. You think, well, you know, we got through that. How? It looked bleak. You even lost your whole house or you lost something. Yeah, you know, but we, we have hope. It's okay. You know, my heart's not in my possessions. and It just starts from there. Trust the Spirit's leading with that. You might be surprised at the fruit God will bring. And just remember that your testimony is a gift from the Lord. 
So if a testimony is a gift from the Lord, we can't get a testimony unless we have a test. So embrace those tests. Say, God, where are you in this? What do I need to know? What do you want me to learn through this? How do you want me to grow through this? Because I know you're just not having me go through this for fun. There's a purpose here. You'll be glorified somehow through this. How do I do that? Show me. Give me wisdom. Use it for his glory. And you might be surprised at how he uses your testimony after bringing you through all he's brought you through. He's brought you through a lot, right? Everybody. He's brought you through a lot. Think about those things. Polish up your testimony. And get ready because he'll use it if you're willing. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I know we think that we have troubles in this life, and we certainly do, but to look at your life and what you've given up for us, our troubles should pale in comparison. You came to earth to give your life for us who didn't deserve it. We still have the audacity to complain. So Lord, please help us not complain. Help us be thankful even in the valleys of life. Help us to trust you that you'll get us through. Even as hard as it is to say, even if it costs us our lives. You know the name of each martyr for the Christian faith. You know each person that has gone to heaven through physical trials. But Lord, they have the victory no matter what. Help us to see eternally, from that eternal perspective, that even though we will at some point not be breathing anymore on this earth, we still have life. We have a life eternal with you. And help with that to encourage us and to help us to see our testimonies so that we can make them a strong tool for your gospel message to our neighbors and to people around us. We want to put our light on a hill, not keep it under a basket, right? So Lord, please help us to see that we have a testimony, that you brought us through so many things. But it's you that have brought us through. Let's give you the glory as always. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. At this time, we'll receive the offering. And while we do that, I'd like to ask two things. I'd like to ask Tom and Laura to come forward. If you would, we're going to pray for you, if, if you'd be so willing. This is not announced, but I just felt on my heart that we're here. And let's pray for our brother and our sister.